Shabbat Shalom and welcome to the Musson household. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. As I light our Shabbat candles to set apart this special gift for our family, may it remind us all of the light of Messiah that shines in us and in our home. As I cover my eyes, may we be reminded that before Messiah opens our eyes, we cannot see the glories and the joy of all on which his light sheds understanding. With my hands, I spread the light of the candles throughout our home to express my desire as a wife and mother that the light of Messiah and the joy of his Shabbat rest be spread throughout our home. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Malech HaOlam, Asher Kidshanu B'mitzvotav, Vitzivanu Lehiot or Legoyim Vanatan Lanu, Et Yeshua Meshikenu or HaOlam. Blessed are you, Adonai our Elohim, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua, our Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now for the Kiddush. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei Amen. Blessed are you, Adonai Elohim, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. And now, for the blessing over the bread. Amotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to Yah for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, amotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed are you, Adonai Elohim, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. And now, the blessing for the wife. Adonai, my Elohim, thank you for the incredibly wonderful wife that you have been so gracious to bless me with. May she be, as it says in your word, a woman of valor, more precious than jewels, in whom my heart may trust and my fortune is found. Amen. And the blessing for the husband. Adonai, my Elohim, I thank you for the husband that you have been so gracious to bless me with. May he be, as it says in your word, a man whose delight is in your Torah. May he be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Amen. Blessing for the children. Behold! Children are a gift of Adonai. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Blessing for the sons. Yisimcha Elohim ke'Ephraim v'ki Manasseh. May Elohim make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Adonai, my Elohim, I thank you for the sons that you have given me. May they be, as it says in your word, men whose delight is in your holy Torah, gracious, compassionate, and righteous, fearing no evil, but with a steadfast heart to 
trusting in you. Amen. And the blessing for our daughters. Adonai, our Elohim, we thank you for the daughters that you have blessed us with. May they be, as it says in your word, women of valor, more precious than jewels, arrayed in strength and majesty, and whose mouths open with wisdom so that the teaching of kindness may be upon their tongues. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. May the peace of Adonai be with you always. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Adonai hamvorach. Baruch Adonai hamvorach le'olam va'ed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha ba'elim Adonai. Michamocha nedar ba'kodesh. Noratehi lot. Oh, save Oh, save Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none you are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you, O Lord. Amen. And now the blessing of Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natanlanu et derech ha-Yeshua ba-Mashiach Yeshua. All together... Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et hashabat. La'asot et hashabat ladoratam barit olam. B'nei uvayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. K'sheshet yamin asa aronai et hashamayim va'et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat va'yenefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam Vaed, Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. 
Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Aronai Elochecha. Ve'chol levavcha, uv'chol nafshecha, uv'chol meyodecha. Ve'hayu ha'devarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Ve'shinantam levanecha, ve'libartabam, ve'shivtecha, ve'beftecha, uv'lechtecha, ve'derech, uv'shuch becha, uv'kumicha. Uksartam leot al yedecha, v'hayu letotafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Shalom, everyone. Welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast. This Sabbath, it is the Sabbath of Miketz, and we're still in the book of Genesis, looking at the story of Joseph and his brethren. And to recount uh, what the Torah portion is about, as you know, Joseph had been rejected by his brethren. He had been put in a pit. He had been pulled out of the pit, sold into slavery down in Egypt. And in last week's portion, we saw where he um, had gotten a job working for the captain of the guard. Uh, the wife had um, lied about him. He ended up in prison. And not only was he rejected by his brethren, but he's rejected by the Egyptians. He's in deep trouble. He's in prison. But in the course of events, um, there was a couple of the king's servants, the cupbearer and the baker. They also got thrown in prison. And he got to know them, they got to know him. Well, the day came when those previous servants of Pharaoh, they were released from prison, and they went up before Pharaoh. And in, in the circumstances that happened, you know, he had pled with them, say something to Pharaoh on my behalf. Well, they really didn't. And as he had prophesied to these men as to what was going to happen, one was going to die and one was going to live, why those events happened. Joseph was correct in what he had told these two men. Well, the day comes after those events, and that's what this portion is about. Pharaoh has a dream. He wakes up one morning, and he has had this very powerful dream. In fact, he's actually had two dreams, and so he's perplexed by these dreams. They really are, have captivated his attention. And so he calls for the wise men of the kingdom, the magicians of Egypt, and so forth, and he wants an interpretation because he knows there's something there that he needs to know, but he can't quite figure it out, and so he's asking for counsel on how to do this. And, of course, the dream was about these seven fat cows that ate up these seven lean cows, and it was about these seven ears of corn that ate the lean ears of corn, and and uh, there were seven of them and so forth. And he's trying to figure it out. Well, they can't do it. All the magicians of Egypt and all of the wise men of Egypt, they can't, they can't figure out what it is. Whatever answer they give, he, the Pharaoh knows that's not right. Well, since he's highly perplexed, one of his servants, who had previously been in prison, says, Hey, I knew this guy who's down in prison who he prophesied to me what was going to happen between the two of us, and what he said turned out to be true. I mean, he has some kind of spiritual skill or strength 
to understand some of these things. And so Pharaoh says, well, let's get that guy up here. Let me, let me talk to him. So they pull Joseph out of prison, and they bring him up, and uh, Joseph says, well, according to the Lord, I'll do the best I can. And Pharaoh explains the dream, okay? And uh, that's when Joseph says, well, I'll give you the interpretation. And there's a lot of very, very important principles that come out about spiritual dreams and spiritual interpretations of dreams that come out of it. Um, you know, lots, lots of us as brethren, I, I know a lot of brethren who want to come up and they want to share with me a dream they've had or the, something that they think was some sort of prophetic insight and so forth. You don't look down on that. You don't despise it. You hear what it is, but you have to then go and examine what it is. But a lot of times, and this is where the spiritual principle comes in, a lot of times these dreams and these things that these people are reporting, they're not about other people. They're about the person who got it. That the proper interpretation has something to do with them. God's trying to talk to them. In Hebrew thought, and, and I, I don't know that this is absolutely correct, I'm just going to repeat to you what some Hebrew thought is on this. A lot of Hebrew sages say that if you have a dream or you have a vision, that that's God trying to talk to you. He's trying to tell you something. And what that means is that at least two times before that, in the daytime, when you were conscious and your conscious mind was working, that God tried to communicate with you and tell you something and you didn't listen. You didn't get it. And so his final way of coming to you is to come to you in a dream or a vision to try to get your attention, communicate in a completely different channel with you so you can get the message. Now, if that is true, and I don't know that that is, if that is true, that should cause us to be a little bit more sober and not so enthusiastic about thinking that a really big deal has happened to us because we've had a dream or we've had a vision, especially if we understand that it was something, it was a message given to us personally. Um, and that's not to say that you can't share it or be part of your testimony at all. That's not at all to say that. What it is to say is that this form of communication with God, you know, with us, is a very powerful form of communication. And in most cases, I'm just going to say to you, this is based on Torah and other scripture, it, in most cases it has, it's been given to you because it's primarily for you. This dream that Pharaoh had, it had implications for all of Egypt. But God did not send the dream to Pharaoh for all of Egypt. He sent the dream to Pharaoh for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh knew it was his burden to figure that out. Let me drop over and tell you about Joseph, the dreams that Joseph had. It wasn't about Joseph's brethren. It involved them. It involved them, sure. But it was about Joseph. It was telling Joseph something he needed to know. And in fact, we have in this portion where the brothers have... Um, are, have been brought back because Benjamin had Joseph's cup and all of a sudden they're caught 
and they're in deep, deep trouble. And the reason why that whole scenario happened is because when the brethren first came to buy, to buy food, Benjamin wasn't present. And the dream that Joseph had been told was all 11 will bow down to him, not 10. And that's the reason why he asked, do you have a brother? And they, yes, Benjamin, and so forth. Well, I'm not going to see you again unless he shows up too. Because the dream said all of them would be there, not just some of them. And so Joseph was following that dream because it was precise instruction for him. And it says clearly, he remembered the dream and to go forth. So we have another powerful incident in this Haftor portion about Pharaoh, um, or excuse me, the Torah portion is about Pharaoh having a dream and what transpires. But now let's go to the Haftor portion, which is in 1 Kings 3, and let's see who else is going to have a dream. Let's see what else is going to be happening that's like in the vein of what we see going on in the Torah portion. And for that, we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 3. And we're going to go to verse uh, 15. We're going to begin there with these words. Then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for all of his servants. The two women were harlots, came to the king and stood before him. And the one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. And I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. And it happened on the third day after I gave birth that the woman also gave birth to a child who were there together. And there was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while we were the maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. And when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, No, for the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, No, for the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son who is living, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, No, for your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. He's repeating it back. So he says, verse 24, And the king said, Get me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose child was living, one spoke to the king, and for she was deeply stirred over her son and said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And when all Israel heard the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. 
This uh, is a very famous story about King Solomon, uh, intriguing story. Uh, two women have, both have sons, but one son dies. And the other woman takes the baby from the other one and claims it belongs to her. And so the dispute comes before the king. And Solomon, upon hearing what's going on, and this is basically an impasse, she said, she said. I mean, how do, how do you sort that out? Where, where's additional evidence? Do we have a witness that can say, well, I saw this child with this mother, uh, not the other one? No, we don't have that. We don't have another witness. We're, we're going to have to make a decision on something which clearly appears to be an impasse that no one can make a reasonable decision on. So King Solomon does something rather interesting. He calls for the sword. He's going to split the kid down the middle. I'll give you half the kid, you can have half the kid. Well, you know, of course, the moment he does that, the kid's dead. The real mother is willing to lay down her, her interest for the benefit of her child. So she says, no, 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 go ahead and give, give it to her that he might live. And the other one, thinking they're right and righteous, said, no, what the king has said, it's good. Split it down the middle, we'll each take half. And the interest of the child is not at all in her thinking. She's just trying to prevail in what is going on. And King Solomon is able to measure the situation out and give the child to the rightful mother when there was this impasse. The reason why the story, that typically what this story is about, and we get hear it, I think I've heard this story from different teachers probably 50 times in my life. Anytime you talk about the wisdom of Solomon, they always bring this story up. Wisdom had this, Solomon had this great wisdom, and they tell the story. They have a tendency to leave off that last part. You know, the last part where the other mother says, go ahead, divide the child. They, they skip that part, and they just tell this other part, and so forth. But once you understand what the second woman said, the last part, oh, go ahead and divide the child, even you can see the wisdom of Solomon. Even you can understand why he did that. But here's the interesting part of the story, and this is the interesting part of why this Hoftor portion ties back in to the story of Joseph as he began to rule in Egypt and deal with his brothers. The, uh, he had the wisdom to put the situation that was before him, which was an impasse, he had the, the wisdom to put the situation in that it would cause the truth to come forth. He would get the witnesses actually to show something that would reveal what the truth and what is the right decision uh, to be made. So there's righteousness and justice present. And that's what clearly was shown in this example. That's what the people saw about King Solomon. Wait a minute. He has the skill in rendering judgments to bring forth the righteous judgment, the right judgment for this situation. And that's the testimony that we have of him in this Haftor portion. Well, this is the same thing going back to the Torah portion. That's the reason why they tie this one together. Um, you know, why didn't um, 
Why did Joseph set it up for when all the brothers had come back and he was treating them good and putting, you know, their, filling their sacks and so forth? Why did he take his cup and have it put in Benjamin's sack? To entrap them. It doesn't really sound right, does it? Doesn't sound fair. And that's the same reaction when King Solomon says, get me a sword, I want to cut this kid in half. What kind of reaction would you have if you heard the guy says, let's cut him in half? What? Well, I think that some of us also have that same reaction when we see the story of Joseph, how he put that thing in Benjamin's sack and they barely leave and the the guards chase after him and and they, they catch it in his sack and oh my gosh, now, man, are they in trouble. And by the way, Judah who had suggested selling Joseph. All of a sudden, he has to be a surety for Benjamin, who's now been caught. He promised his father, Jacob, I will look out after Benjamin. I will bring him back to you safely. And all of a sudden now, he's got a huge problem. Can you see the dynamics? Joseph was actually pretty smart the way he pulled this off. He pulled it off in such a way so that when Joseph did reveal himself to his brethren, they were in a contrite and remorseful condition. That's the way they needed to be for them to find out their brother Joseph was still alive and with them. They needed to be remorseful. They needed to be sorry for their actions. They needed to understand the righteousness and the judgment that was happening to them. This is uh, sometimes, I think, for some brethren, a very difficult thing. I have seen brethren who have gone out and made mistakes. Some of them, big mistakes. And the circumstances come around where they are confronted with the fact that they have made this huge mistake. And rather than doing the same thing that the brothers did with Joseph to be reunited with him, and uh, the same things that the child was reunited with the proper mother, they put themselves in a position where when they're confronted, they're not reunited, they're banished. And usually it's self-banishment. That they're not willing to accept the conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit to be in, in correct behavior with their brethren they instead separate from their brethren completely and they, they walk away mumbling in their breath that somehow they must be right even though their spirit is convicting them. And that's tragic. I think part of learning the lesson here of this Torah portion and so forth is there's a huge lesson for us as spiritual brethren, particularly in the case of Joseph and his brothers, We need to be very careful how we treat our fellow brethren. 
Now, some of our brethren that are walking around, there's no way that they are a Joseph type. There is no way that God has his hand on them to do special things. And so I can go ahead and treat him however I wish, into and including bad-mouthing his name and doing bad things to him. But you know what? It's like what I said before. You know, God knows who every one of us is. And he has a plan for every one of us. And sometimes God will plan it where somebody will come forth and be rejected only to set the stage for him to be victorious in that situation so that God receives the glory. And you see the righteousness and the justice carried out. These are very deep and fascinating stories. Uh, ones that we should take to heart. Um, and on this Sabbath, I want to encourage you to uh, consider the story and the possible application for you in your life, your relationship with your brethren, and your congregation, wherever you are at. Be humble. Be aware that God is definitely involved in your life and other people's lives, that he has a great plan. He can see everybody's heart. He sees what's going on. And maybe he has a purpose for someone or something that you don't know about. And maybe you should give him some elbow room to allow him to do those things. That would be the wise and just and righteous thing to do. So let us take that to heart. And we'll call that another lesson in spiritual humility. All right. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. Hold your finger there at chapter 1, at the end of the chapter, where our Brit Hadashah portion will begin for this week. Let us go before the Lord and turn this time over to Him. Heavenly Father, we thank You for, uh, once again, the Sabbath that You have called us to rest. And Father, we thank You for this time that we get to dig into Your Word, into Your, into your instruction, Father. And may we be blessed and encouraged and strengthened by all the words uh, that You speak to us here this week through this teaching and also through the other teachings and all of the uh, those Torah teachers around the world uh, that are sharing your word in every city where they may be, Father, so that we can meditate on your instructions and on your word. So, Father, we thank you for this time. We turn it over to you, and we bless your name and your kingdom at this time. In your Son, Yeshua, that we pray. Amen. So our Torah portion of Miketz, uh, as it's already been described and as you've probably read and studied, is the portion, of course, when Joseph gets risen up out of prison, that he is, uh, that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has dreams. And it's that, uh, that cupbearer, that one that, that came and, and was risen up out of prison, the same prison that Joseph was in. Joseph interpreted his dreams. He then, there was then Pharaoh that then had a dream that none of the wise men of Egypt could interpret. And the cupbearer, brave as he was, said there was this man in prison that interpreted my dream uh, from before. Maybe he can interpret yours. And so then Joseph, a man who was accused, sent to prison, left for dead practically, is now going to be called by Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and literally the ruler of the world at the time, as Egypt was the world power at the time, is being called to him to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. 
We, of course, know the story, the interpretation of the dreams that he uh, hears the words of the story about the, the, the cows coming up out of the, the river and the gaunt cows eating up seven cows that were full and plenty and interpreting that there's going to be a great famine coming. There's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine, and that then there is a whole plan for the world to not go hungry, to not starve to death in those seven years of famine so that Joseph then interprets that you need to appoint a wise man that will oversee the gathering of the grain for seven years so that then there can be grain to eat for the seven years of famine. And of course, Joseph is risen up out of prison and is made to be the viceroy of Egypt, the one, the leader of all Egypt, save only for Pharaoh, the king. Now, this is an incredible story of, of a, a redemption story of him being left for dead, being a slave, and then being risen up to being alive all the way up to being basically at the right hand of the king. Now, the parallels to Yeshua and Joseph are uncanny. I already described some of them last week, but those same parallels in the story of Joseph continues on here. So when we get into the Brit Hadashah portions, where we try to teach the principles and the stories of the Torah portion through the writings of the New Testament, honestly, it's not that hard to do when you're talking about finding parallels and comparisons to between Joseph and Yeshua. But let me first start here. At the end of the first chapter of 2 Peter, we have wonderful uh, two verses that very much describe how God speaks to us and how you and all people and all believers are to hear the word of the Lord. If you don't have these verses highlighted in your scripture, I very much encourage you to do so. Reading here at 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, starting at verse 20, it says this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That is what Joseph did when he came and interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh. All honor and reverence and power goes to God for the interpretation of these dreams. We might look to Joseph and think that, that and, and that's probably what the people of Egypt thought when they saw Joseph and him interpreting the dreams. They're like, man, this is a wise man. This man is, is, is incredible. And, and they're praising the man who was Joseph. However, Joseph had learned and had matured over time. He'd matured beyond the 17-year-old kid that told his, the interpretation of his own dreams to his brothers. They got them even more angry with him and even got his, his father kind of angry with him when he starts interpreting these dreams at 17 years old that one day he would rule over all of his brothers and even his father and his mothers. Um, this was something he needed to learn over time. He matured over time to where by the time that he appeared before Pharaoh at 30 years of age, that he then knew and how to, how to uh, graciously approach the interpretation of the dream, how to humbly approach the fact that these interpretations come from God, not from man. And that is exactly what the scripture here in 2 Peter speaks to, is this idea that even when there are holy men of God who speak the word of God, there have been prophets that have come before us. There have been, you probably have in your own life, in your own testimony, preachers who spoke the Word of God, who encouraged you in your faith. And it's so easy sometimes to suddenly start to give honor to the man that speaks those words. 
to suddenly just start start learning and you, and you just want to follow every word that that person says and you want to get every teaching that that person says and that that and and you just start following them and everything that they say Here's what happens, though, is that in the course of Joseph's life, was every word that Joseph ever spoke some interpretation of a dream that is all the power of the Holy Spirit that spoke every word? Not every word that he spoke. Now, there are times recorded in our Scripture, and you can know that people sometimes, that that God uses the prophets to speak those words. But that's not for us to then blindly follow everything that Joseph ever said or ever did. It's only that he's a prophet, that, he was, that the Word of God was spoken through him. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't the Word of God. See, that's the thing that we have to recognize. Look, we can stop and we can think, and we're, we, this is the responsibility that's put on us as believers, to weigh and consider when the Word of God has been spoken to us. Look, we, we could say it's like, look, I, I'm not going to listen to man. I'm only going to listen to God. So you all, some people might dig in their heels and say the only time they're ever going to listen or trust that something is the Word of God is when God's voice booms from the heavens and goes straight into their eardrums. And they might reject any word of man because they don't want that anything mixed with the Word of God, mixed with the thoughts and impressions and opinions of man. And so they're not going to listen to man. They, all they're going to listen to and all they're going to focus on is I'm going to wait until God tells me. Excuse me, but in all of our scripture, so much of it is is contained in it is the word of God spoken through his prophets. That's how God speaks to his people. That's what it says, that it's like that God speaks to holy men as they were moved of the Holy Spirit. Look, I'll, I'll just lay it out for you this way. If how in the world is God really going to speak to you if he is not going to use a prophet or a holy man of God that actually uses audible speech coming out of their mouth to go into your ears so that you hear the word? You could sit there and say and dismiss anything that any person has ever said because you're waiting for God to speak to you, except the precedent of Scripture is he uses holy men of God to speak his word. That's something that you, that's a pitfall that we have to do. And that's, again, once I said, the responsibility of the believer to weigh and consider the words of holy men of God. Are people moved of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely people are moved of the Holy Spirit when they speak and we speak that word. Are we supposed to then blindly follow everything that man, that man says? No. Are we supposed to worship that man now because he's a holy prophet? No. It's the word of God. Now, this is the contrast between Joseph and Yeshua the Messiah. Yeshua was God. It was the embodiment of God. That's why the Messiah reigns above all. That's why he's above the prophets. That's why he's above Joseph. Yeshua is in a different class. What I'm speaking to us here in modern times, and also when we are constantly in our lives, we're praying to the Lord, Lord, reveal your will. Speak to me. Show me what it is that you want to teach me, what you would have for me, for my life. What often is the way and the precedent by which God speaks to people is through His prophets. We must be mature believers who know when the Word comes from God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, though it might come out of the voice of a man or a friend or a pastor or a preacher or a rabbi or whoever might be the one who has the heart to speak that Word, you have to know and weigh it, and that is your responsibility 
to know that that is the Word of God that is being spoken to you. It's easy to read the Scriptures and say, you know, and read it and then say, oh man, you know, yeah, God was speaking through that person. It's harder in practice to actually do it in your real life because we can look at the words of the Scripture and say, that was a prophet and that was a prophet. And man, those teachings and those words are profound. But then we have to then do it also in modern times. I believe there are modern day prophets, not prophets that are predicting the future. That's not what prophecy is. Prophecy is the word of God. Often it's words of warning for what might come in the future if you go down a certain path, and then if you obey the Lord, then blessings will come later. You might interpret that then when you obeyed the Lord and blessings came, that that person predicted the future. No, that was simply the word of the Lord, and that was a teaching that was given to you. Prophets are those that speak the word of God, that hear the word of God and convey it. Joseph was a prophet. He was an interpreter of dreams specifically, and that God used him to speak those words. Let us always, in all cases, weigh the words of prophecy, weigh the words of God in what we hear and in all of those instructions, knowing that all interpretations belong to God, all glory to Him for the words that are spoken, not to the man who spoke them. So now what I want to do is I want to continue on with our story and specifically about the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. If you turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, <coughs> excuse me, we have a very interesting thing. When I've always uh, found it interesting when you look deeper into Pharaoh's dreams that you had these, these two parts to the dream. You basically had that these years of plenty, these years of, of, of goodness and, and grace and, and all this grain growing and blessings being abundant and abounding. And then come seven years of famine, of death, of destruction, of judgment, and that seven always is the plan of God. So we know there might be some deeper interpretation of these dreams. One of the things that I like to look at it is I like to look at it as the first and second coming of the Messiah. The first coming of the Messiah, he came and he spoke to us about grace and love and truth. And he shared with us how to love one of the brethren, how to truly keep the commandments and how to love one another and to love God, which on the, those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And out of his testimony of Yeshua's first coming, there has been much grace and love and compassion that has been taught throughout the world. Such has been the testimony of the Christian faith and Judeo-Christian morals coming from the teachings of the Messiah, why we have two billion people today that are statistically considered to be Christians. Then we have the seven years of famine, judgment, destruction. This might relate to the second coming of the Messiah, that when the Messiah comes the second time, there is a plan for judgment, for destruction, for judgment upon all of those that have sinned, the enemies of God, the Antichrist, all of those things that will be with great power and with great judgment. So you could look at those two seven years and maybe do a little teaching on the differences between Yeshua's first coming and Yeshua's second coming. The thing I want to read here in Revelation, though, is actually, to me, a parallel passage that is similar to Pharaoh's dream in the sense that these gaunt cows that came up out and consumed the other ones, that were they, it, was, it was the bad thing that's coming comes and consumes that which is good. But what we have here in Revelation in chapter 19, we instead have words of talking about how the things that are good, the Messiah and the angels and the saints, 
overcoming the beast, the enemies of God, things of judgment, things of destruction, things of, of, of pestilence and disease and all those things, and those things being removed no longer. Read along with me here, Revelation 19, and let me start at verse 11. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations." And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword and proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is the story, of course, coming from the revelation that at the end of the age, when the enemies of God will be defeated, where those that had stood against the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah, that have stu stood against God's Son, God, God's salvation of the world, that they would be consumed, that they would be wiped out. What a joyous and great and glorious day that will be. <clears throat> Excuse me. That when the King of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, will consume and remove all of that which was evil. See, and that's what happened. Imagine the feeling back in Egypt when there was a great worldwide famine, there was no food to eat. And then by the time that then food was given and the way and when you could consume and be, hung, be filled and be satisfied, the feeling that there was a means to live and a means of salvation. And that as those plentiful years were consumed up and used to satisfy the hunger of the seven years of famine, that what an amazing victory that was for the salvation of the whole world. In the same way at the end of the age, it will be God and it will be His armies that will consume and will destroy the evil that is in the world. And what a great and glorious day that will be. And so that's a, one of those parallel passages that's kind of the, the flip side of those interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. That you, we can know the interpretation of the dreams had to do with the famine, but we always know that there's sometimes a deeper instruction. There's something deeper going on in, in these stories. And so I hope that that would also encourage us about what is happening in the future when the Lord returns. Now let us turn to the book of Ephesians. 
When Joseph was raised up to be at the right hand of Pharaoh, and then he then had the job and the responsibility for gathering all of this grain, there were some responsibilities that were put upon him to where he had to make sure that this grain was properly harvested, it was stored properly, and then it was distributed equally and evenly. Because there would be people that would come that might come to make war with Egypt. There might be some people that would come and claim that they needed more food than they actually did and all of these things. And so Joseph, having to be the wise man that he was, was the one who became the judge of all of these matters, the judge. And he oversaw the, the, the gathering of the grain and that it came time that the grain was gathered. So much of grain was gathered that it was almost immeasurable how much that it was and, and, and that there always seemed to be enough for whoever might come and ask for that grain. There's an amazing passage. In fact, I think this passage almost parallels this story of Joseph almost better than any other passage. We're going to start at Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 15, and start and think about the words that are obviously being spoken of Yeshua here in the letter to the Ephesians, and that then think about the parallel of truly what happened to Joseph in this process as he was raised up to be the second only to Pharaoh, and what his work then became when he became the viceroy of Egypt. Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 15 says this, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Yeshua and your love for all saints, do not cease to give thanks to you, making mention of you in my prayers, and that God of, that the God of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. I love this passage of Scripture. It speaks so much of the, the power and the authority that has been given to Yeshua after He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Of course, this is the parallel is the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who has ascended Joseph, a man left for dead, who has been risen from the dead, basically, to then be the right hand of the king, the master of the universe, and that then he has power over all, dominion over all, in judging in all of these things, in the distribution of the grain, in the distribution of the, the life-saving uh, uh, food that would give those to those that are hungry. It was by this that Joseph became the savior of the world. And it says that the gathering of the grain, it was immeasurable. That's what we like to say about the testimony of Yeshua as well, that His ability to save is immeasurable. 
There is not so many people that are allowed into the kingdom that once we reach our quota, those are the only people that are going to be allowed. And then suddenly, if you didn't come to the Lord and you didn't ask for him to, 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 for that salvation, if you were a little late to the game, then sorry, we ran out. Same thing would be said of Joseph, you know, you know, once he's feeding, he's distributing all this food, this grain, and then more people come and guess what? We ran out of grain. Sorry, no more salvation. That wasn't the testimony of what happened in Egypt, and that is not our testimony as believers in Yeshua, that his ability to save is not hampered by a certain number of people. His ability to save is immeasurable. And he is the one who has dominion over all, and he has been raised up from the dead. He is rich in mercy and grace and in love. And that's the spirit that was within Joseph as well. What did the Pharaoh and the wise men say of Joseph? They said, this is a wise man who has the spirit of God in him. This is talking also about the the Messiah himself. And that in him is the spirit of, of wisdom, the spirit of revelation, that it was through him, through his words, that he is the one who is a righteous judge over all. Joseph had to be righteous in all of his judgments as well. And so that is the parallel between what the Messiah did and what Joseph did as well. Now I want to continue on in Ephesians going into chapter 2. <clears throat> Excuse me, because there's another parallel here. And it, it, the, the, the phrasing just continues on. And I just love this encouragement that continues uh, to come here in uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 2, And you he made alive who were dead in trespass and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit of now works the sons of disobedience, among whom all we are once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, Because of His great love, which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespass, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places with Messiah Yeshua, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His loving kindness toward us in Messiah Yeshua. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His worksmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, that's what all happened when these people came to Joseph to get this grain. Some of them might not have realized the amount of preparation that had to go in before it was available to them. Remember the seven years of plenty, the storage of the grain, that Joseph had made a way and a means and a plan that had been prepared from the beginning before it had even, before the need of the grain actually arose. In the same way that it says here in our scripture that it was that God prepared all of these things beforehand so that we might walk in them. So we serve a God of order, not a God of chaos. When God says that He has planned something, He has planned it, He has purposed it, and He will do it, as the prophet Isaiah says. 
And so that's the God that we serve in the way that He is abundant in His mercy and His love, even though people were dead in their trespasses, even though people were dead. You Think about this back in ancient Egypt once again. Do you think the enemies of Egypt came to buy grain? Because they were the only ones that had them. Enemies of Egypt. People who were, who were walked in sin and all, of that, and, and all of their pagan ways and worship and all of these things. And here's Joseph, a Hebrew, a son of Abraham, who follows the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his fathers, and that he is the one who's then standing here and you have all of these people and these nations coming to Egypt to buy food, to buy grain so that they might live and sustain. And some of them were enemies of the God of, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Enemies of Egypt. And so they were, I mean, they have no, they're dead in their trespasses. They, are, they have trespassed against God. They have trespassed against the nation of Egypt, if you're taking it from a secular approach. And that yet still, grain was given to those who were in need. This is the testimony of the Messiah. That though we, people who have walked in their, in, in their sin, and how many people converted and cast away? How many people were starving during the days of the famine and praying to their gods of whoever of God knows what their names were, that were for them to be food or for grain to grow and nothing ever happened? So then what did they have to do? They had to come to this guy named Joseph. And he is the one that had grain and had a plan and a purpose and it was measured. And how many people turned away from their gods of stone at this time? Now, we know, of course, sociopolitically, you know, people would come and they eventually in this whole process sold themselves to Egypt. And many of them became Egyptians and Egyptian slaves in the whole process. And so I'm not sitting here as a proponent of that people became and converted to believing in all the gods of Egypt. What I'm trying to point out is the fact that it was by the man Joseph and that there might have been some that may have inquired, who do you worship? What God do you follow? That you were this man, this wise man that gathered this grain, that interpreted these dreams, that it was through the power of his God and through the spirit of God in him that all of this was made possible. This is the means by which people can cast out their sins and their idolatry and the things that they used to worship and the things they used to do and follow. When their time of need finally comes, and who is the one that truly saved them? It was Joseph, the Savior of the world, back in Egypt. Though people dead in their trespasses and all of their things, he was the one that gave them life. And that's why so many of us in our lives and in our testimonies of coming into the faith in Yeshua Messiah, we have to die unto ourselves. We have to be at the end of our rope, consumed in sin, left for dead, until we then look to finally see the one who saved us is who we then should follow. Casting away our sins or, or idols or anything else we used to follow or believe in or whatever friends we used to hang out with or whoever we used to, to follow and instead, we turn and we're going to follow the one who gave us life, who the one who, who saved us in our time of need. That is what our testimony of Yeshua needs to be. And that is, and his, he is rich in mercy and grace, and his ability to save is truly immeasurable. How amazing that, that truly is. Now, 
Well, here's one of the other things I want to point out, because the people had to go to Joseph to get the grain. Pharaoh didn't allow anybody else. It was Joseph's call who got the grain. So now, turn with me to the Gospel of John, to chapter 14. Because here we have the Messiah speaking to us uh, here through the, uh, in the Gospel of John. And we have, it seems like we go over these verses all the time. This is when he was at the Passover and he was teaching the disciples. And in my Bible, there's a lot of red letters and some of the most powerful words. I, some of my favorite passages here are in the Gospel of John, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. I love all, all of these, these passages here. But this one is, you know, sometimes one of the most quoted and one of the most profound when we're talking about truly what it is to go to the Lord, go to Yeshua for that life-saving salvation. John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. There's that preparation again I was talking about. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Yeshua said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This, is, this passage is understanding of when it comes to how do we receive eternal salvation and through much teaching through the Christian church over the years. And, and, and when you dig into this, you have to know that it is the judgment of Yeshua that is who is allowed to go in to be through the Father. Now, we believe and we testify to the blood of Messiah. We claim that blood and we can claim that belief in Yeshua and that He is our high priest, our intercessor. That's actually what a lot of this passage, this verse uh, pertains to, I believe, is that He is the intercessor between us and God. Nobody went into that temple or nobody went into the presence of God, into the holy place or the holy of holies. And we'll get into that, especially when it comes to uh, all the Torah portions talking about the tabernacle. Nobody went in except by the high priest. And Yeshua being our high priest, he is the intercessor between us and God. And nobody goes to, him, to God except through him. Nobody receives salvation except through him. Now, eternally, this has caused people to question, to say, well, look, if I never heard the testimony of Yeshua or a family member of mine never heard the testimony of Jesus, never claimed that name, then when they died, does that mean they didn't go to be in the presence of God at that time? First of all, you should never be a, give the foolish answer and say, well, if they didn't know Jesus, then, they, then they're not in heaven. No, don't be a fool and make that statement. It is God's judgment in all things that makes that decision. We don't get to say that. We don't know what went through the mind of that person on their deathbed or anything like that. We don't know how God might have revealed them, himself to them, even though they didn't walk in a testimony of believing. Do not speak presumptuously to ever say that somebody isn't in the presence of God after they die, if we even know truly what an afterlife is. Don't say that. That is purely the judgment of God. But what we can believe is this, is that through the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah, when He says He is the way, He is the truth, He is the life, and he, through Him how we get to God, 
then we follow that and we believe in that. And we have to go to Him when we can make that choice, that conscious choice to follow God, His words, His teachings, His instructions. Then we go through Yeshua, our great high priest and our Savior. And we must go to Him. We pray in His name so that we might receive that salvation. We must go to Him. Then the same thing in ancient Egypt. They had to go to Joseph. Nobody was getting grain unless they went to him. If somebody was fearful, I don't want to talk to the viceroy of Egypt. He's some big, higher-up, important person. I don't want to go and talk to him. If you didn't, you didn't receive the grain. You didn't receive the thing you needed so that you might live. That's the testimony that we share with one another. Go to the Father. Pray to him so that he might give you that life give you the grain that is immeasurable, that He is gracious and rich in mercy and is willing to give it to you. All you have to do is go and ask. That's the encouragement that we have to our brethren, to any new believers, that when people are walking in their trespasses, when they feel like they're left for dead, when they're hungry, when they're in need, all of these things, we encourage them. Pray to the Father. Pray to the King of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. In the name of Yeshua, give me the salvation. Save me from my sin. Save me from my, that inevitable death. Grant me eternal life and forgive my sins. This is what we pray. This is how we pray to the Lord. This is how we receive salvation. This is how we receive the life that God is offering to us. You know, maybe it's easier if you're simply hungry and your stomach is growling at you and that person has food. And so maybe you have this, there's more of an ease and an understanding to say, that person has food, I'm going to go and ask him for food. And then he gives it to me. What a wonderful thing that is. Sometimes it's harder for us to understand spiritually when we're hungry, spiritually when we're struggling. That's the that's a challenge that we have sometimes that we need to be self-aware of where we are in our, in our sin, in our depression, in our fear, in our anxieties, in, a, in the things that we have inside of our hearts, inside of our lives, to know truly we are dying, we are starving for the life and the grace and the joy and the peace and the love that God has to offer. Sometimes we have to cast all of those other things aside and just cry out to the one who has those things, who has the love, who has the joy, who has the peace, and has it in abundance, and ask Him for that grace, for that life, for that love. That's what we have to do. And sometimes we have to do it more often than we realize. It's not this idea that, well, I accepted the Lord a long time ago, so I'm good, right? No, that doesn't stop us from struggling sometimes, and that doesn't stop us from sometimes having to go and ask for the life again. We'll have a story going into next week, of course, that sometimes you went and you asked Joseph for some grain, then you ate it, and then you needed some more. That's something that we need to sometimes remember that in our human nature, sometimes we're either not satisfied or we don't know what to do truly with the life that God has given to us. So let us be encouraged, let us be strengthened, and let us always remember who we need to go to for our salvation. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this portion, these passages of Scripture. Father, may we be encouraged in our faith, Father. May we always turn to you in all of our needs, in all of our times of need, Father, for all of us are struggling. All of us 
are dying a little every day, Father, when we're consumed in a world of sin and we're consumed in, in the mistakes that we've made, Father. I pray that we, we, you would cause us, Lord, to cast those things away. Lay those burdens upon you, Father, on, on, on the Messiah, Lord, the sacrifice for those sins so that we might receive that salvation. Father, we are all hungry, Lord, for your word, for your instruction, for your life, your love, your peace, your joy. Father, I pray that you would pour those things out upon us in abundance, Lord, so that we might be saved and we might be satisfied, Father, in this world of, of famine, this spiritual wilderness of words and things, that the world that we find ourselves in, Lord, this unclean place. Father, I pray that you just continue to make a way for salvation for us. May that salvation grow in abundance, Lord. May those who are hurting and hungry call out to your name and receive that salvation. And Father, for those that have a testimony of believing in you, keep us strong and courageous, Lord. Keep us encouraged in that faith, Lord, that we never forget who saved us. We never forget where those blessings came from. We never forget, Lord, where interpretations and prophecies truly come from, not from man, Lord, but from you and from you alone. May we always give that honor and that reverence to you. We love you and bless you and thank you on the Sabbath day. We thank you for this day of rest and for everything you do in our lives. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.